0: ...about one of the skeletons in Australia's closet. We're going to be talking about the White Australia Policy. Australia, obviously, is not unique in having plenty of darker moments in its history, from, you know, the displacement and massacre of Aboriginal people uh, when Australia was first colonised, to various accusations of war crimes throughout its history, things like that. But there is one particularly infamous stain that is on Australia's history, and it is, of course, the white Australia policy, the the racist approach that Australia took to immigration laws for the overwhelming majority of its history, both both pre- and post-colonial, lasting well into the 20th century. The white Australia policy um, isn't one specific single piece of legislation. It, It more refers to the overall guiding principle that governed Australia's immigration laws throughout, as I say, throughout the bulk of its history. And uh, the this guiding principle was essentially to keep non-white people out of Australia, and even more specifically, to keep non-British, non-Irish, non-Scottish, Welsh, English people out of Australia. This principle first emerged during Australia's colonial history, but as I mentioned, it lasted well into the 20th century with, with the broad and widespread support of Australian society for much of the much of this time, I might add. Um And so much so that even the British Empire, as it was at the time, um saw Australia's harsh immigration laws as unbelievably racist, which says something about just how oppressive they are if, if the British Empire are taking issue with them. I mean, I, I, I suppose you probably already figured this out, but I'm going to warn you this, you know, <clears throat> we're going to discuss a lot of a lot of racist drivel in this episode. And, you know, we talk about the views that people held over the years, the way they influenced Australia's immigration policy. So before we start, I I want to make it abundantly clear that, you know, I absolutely reject these views unreservedly. Today's episode is meant to illuminate a portion of Australia's history that we are much of the time all too willing to forget about. I absolutely do not endorse the racist ideas that we'll be discussing today. And well, I know this podcast generally doesn't mind, you know, getting silly and having a bit of a giggle at stuff. Today's episode is going to be—it's going to be a little more, a little more sober, a little more scholarly, I suppose, and that does involve the discussion of some extremely distasteful and outdated ideas, ideas that once again I do not support in any way. However, despite how ugly this—well, actually, no, really—because of how all ugly this is, it should be talked about. It—it it, it does need to be discussed. I mean, I like being Australian. Generally speaking, I'm very proud of my country, but as a nation, I think. We are a little too ready to gloss over things like the White Australia policy, so we are here to do the opposite today. We're here to actually talk about it, in, in a way that it, you know, perhaps should be talked about. And I want to thank Alert listener Jerry Miller for suggesting Australia's history of racial discrimination as a as a topic, even if it's not the sort of light and frothy topic that you'd expect on this dumb podcast. It's obviously still worth discussing. So thanks very much, Jerry. Good on you, mate, for that one. <clears throat> anyway, let's get to it here. Let's get across a a very sorry chapter. In Australia's history, the white Australia policy saw government-sponsored racism, discrimination, uh, govern Australia's law and, and and policy for a long time, probably longer than you'd believe. So we're going all the way back, all the way back. Well, bloody hell, where did we go back to, actually? I mean, <laughs> the entire story of Australia's colonisation establishment as an internationally recogn- recognised nation is obviously steeped in intrinsically racist concepts as a, as a product of the colonial era. Um, before the first Europeans arrived in the back half of the last millennium, Australia had been inhabited by indigenous populations for tens of thousands of years, around forty to 50,000 years, it's thought. But the first documented European landing on the Australian continent dates from um, 1606, when a Dutch explorer named Willem Janzon landed uh, landed on, up on up the northern coast. Um, But the most significant early European explorer when it comes to Australia is, of course, Captain Cook, uh, who landed in Australia in 1770 and mapped the East Coast. And this expedition directly led to the British Empire establishing colonies on the continent. And this included all of the colonial era's greatest hits naturally. The exploitation, the displacement, the murder of indigenous populations, colonists moving in, taking forced possession uh, of the land that, you know, these people had inhabited for tens of thousands of years. And these colonists, these settlers, and of course, these convicts, a huge proportion of Australia's non-native population, were prisoners who were sentenced to transportation to a penal colony. All of these people were British, almost exclusively. That is to say, they were English, Irish, Welsh, and Scottish. The overwhelming majority of new arrivals to Australia during its early colonial history were from the British Isles. And this is very important. This is very important, as it was the precursor to what would go on to become the white Australia policy in later years. The idea that the default Australian was a white European from the British Isles, typically someone typically from England. Never mind, of course, that Australia already had plenty of Australians who were right in the middle of seeing their traditional lands pillaged from them wholesale, of course. What I'm trying to establish here by saying this is that the European colonists who moved to Australia, either voluntarily or against their will as convicts, were all white and almost all from the British Isles. So this is, as I say again, in inverted commas, the default Australian, uh, which was very important in sort of framing the immigration policy of of of, of these colonies to begin with. And then later on, a, a fully federated Australia, uh, this idea that it was a white, quote unquote, English country. And the reason that the formulation of this new Australian identity is so important Uh, is because of what happened in the 1850s. As you might already know, gold was discovered in Australia in 1851, and this immediately triggered a huge gold rush. Untold thousands arrived on Australia's shores in the wake of the discovery of gold, and here's where the problem, and again, I'm I'm using a lot of inverted commas today, I hope they're coming across, I hope they're audible when I say them, here's where the problem arose. As much as Australia had been colonised by white people who were from the British Isles, A sizeable proportion of these new arrivals to the goldfields in particular were neither white nor from Britain. People came from all over the world to seek their fortune, but in particular, a large influx of immigrants from China triggered social and racial disputes in the Australian colonies, specifically, of course, on the gold fields. In the colonies of New South Wales and Victoria, remember Australia isn't yet a nation, it's just a collection of British colonies. In New South Wales and Victoria, Chinese migration to the gold fields caused enormous unrest amongst the, the predominantly white miners who had been there, who banded together to protest the arrival of Chinese miners seeking to exclude them from the diggings. There were some very violent um, anti-Chinese riots that took place during this period such as the Buckland riot in 1857, the Lamming Flat riots in the early 1860s. These riots saw uh, Chinese miners have their, their their property, their possessions destroyed or looted and stolen while they themselves were violently ejected from the goldfields some of them, some of them even losing their lives. Now, the colonial governments, they were called on to intervene. Remember, again, we don't have an Australian federal government at the moment. There's the government of New South Wales, the government of Victoria, and all the rest of them. And these governments were called to intervene in the wake of of these riots, and they did so. Both Victoria and New South Wales, they responded to the racist behavior of these white miners seeking to exclude uh, the Chinese uh, immigrants from from the diggings here. They responded to this racist behavior by essentially affirming it. Both colonies, both Victoria and New South Wales, they restricted Chinese immigration significantly, they placed steep taxes on arrival and residency for Chinese immigrants, and it only got worse from there. This was really the official beginning of the White Australia policy because the government was now, or governments were stepping in. And mandating racist policies to exclude certain people from coming to, uh, you know, the, to the continent of Australia. So this is where the, the white Australia policy has its roots in the, in the cultural and, and racial homogeneity that a lot of these uh, these white European settlers were seeking to achieve faced with then the influx of Chinese migrants to the goldfields in the 1850s and 1860s, and then the government's the, the colonial government's responses to that, that is where the White Australia policy, I guess you can say, officially sort of began. Although it is a blurred line, and as we'll come to, there were other government acts that certainly are, are also pointed to as the inception of the White Australia policy. Anyway, the overall cut and thrust of the White Australia policy, keeping non-white immigra- immigrants out of Australia, certainly reared its very ugly head during the gold rush period in, uh, in, during Australia's colonial history. But the thing is, right, the Australian colonies at this point, right, they were wealthy, they were prosperous, they were thriving with an unbelievably attractive labour market as thousands of people had moved there to seek their fortune, seek gold. And the gold that had been founded, obviously, completely ballooned the colonial economies at the time. And so, the the working conditions of, of in these colonial economies that were absolutely booming, right, had unbelievably attractive labour markets. Workers received high high wages, favourable working conditions such such as the eight hour days. These were things that weren't didn't even exist in Europe, right? Brought on by a very powerful union and labour movement. Colonial Australia in the back half of the nineteenth century was quite accurately portrayed as a paradise for the working man. Labour shortages, strong unions, these drove wages even higher. These enabled even the working class to live with great prosperity and great wealth. But of course, those at the top of the food chain sought to undercut this. Um, Employers who were more or less forced to pay their their workers these high wages started to exploit Australia's endemic racism by cheaply hiring non-white and therefore non-union labour going so far as to import New workers from Asia bring them in as immigrants. And this is the greatest trick that racist capitalists have ever pulled. And they still do it today. Hiring vulnerable immigrants on pitiable wages and conning other workers into blaming the immigrants and not the employers. Still happens today. You still see this in the 21st century, back in the 1870s, back in the 1880s. Again, it is going on to lay the foundations of what would ultimately be officially referred to as the white Australia policy. Indentured labourers were brought in from the Pacific Islands to work on the Queensland sugar plantations. Wealthy landowners continued to bring in Asian immigrants, often Chinese, to work cheaply and thereby circumvent the high wages that Australian workers, which is to say white workers, uh, expected by now. And the unions were up in arms about this, but not for the reasons that you or I might be sort of hoping for these days, unfortunately. Because the unions go, oh, bloody bugger the racism. All we care about about is our members not having their wages undercut by cheap foreign labour. So the labour movement, I mean, a very, very powerful political force both then and now in, in colonial Australia and today. But back then, the unions were lobbying the colonial governments, arguing that immigrant workers lowered wages and decreased working conditions. And the government responded, yet again, not in the way that you might have hoped, They responded to the racist exploitation of foreign workers by just stopping them from coming into Australia in the first place. So this was a win for the white working man in Australia whose high wages weren't at threat from cheap foreign labour, but certainly anyone who was looking for, you know, equitable or egalitarian treatment from the Australian, uh, well, from the colonial governments of of Australia at the time, they uh, they they were told to tell their story walking as they were refused entry and sent back to where they'd come from. In the 1870s and 1880s, all six of the Australian colonies more or less banned Chinese immigration and put a stop stop to the importation of labour. That was their solution. And then in 1895, just a few years before federation saw Australia become a country in its own right, these colonial governments then extended these restrictions not just to Chinese immigrants, but to all non-white people. So the White Australia policy, which at this point is undeniably in force, it predates Australia as a nation. Even by the time that the Australian colonies federated and became the Commonwealth of Australia in 1901, the White Australia policy was already in full force and it enjoyed the broad support of Australian society. So just remember that the White Australia policy isn't one single piece of legislation, but again, the guiding principle of the way that governments, or the either colonial governments or the federal government responded to and, and, and guided immigration issues, immigration laws. So the White Australia policy, I think it's fair to say, predates Australia as a nation and was instrumental in informing and influencing this young nation's approach to its It's not only its own identity, but also how that identity was then enforced. And and I suppose, again, once again, get the inverted commas out, protected. In the lead up to Australian Federation, this is Australian Federation, for those who don't know, is when the the Australian colonies came together to create a new officially internationally recognised nation. The overarching mood uh, when it came to immigration was decidedly and unapologetically racist. There was fringe opposition to, you know, the existing stringent controls on non-white immigration that were sort of grandfathered in from the colonial governments. But largely speaking, Australia supported actively racist government policy. Leading names from uh, Australia's political history, the closest thing that we have to founding fathers, I suppose, they are on record as being avowed racists even into the 20th century. To give you a sense of the mood during the Federation period, Western Australian Premier John Forrest, he had this to say at the Australasian Federation Convention. So this is when the, when the, when the, the colonies came together to discuss what was going to happen when Australia federated. This is what John Forrest, a leading politician at the time, had to say. <clears throat> it is of no use to shut our eyes to the fact that there is a great feeling all over Australia against the introduction of coloured persons. It goes without saying that we do not like to talk about it but it is so. Well, mate, I mean, at least you had the decency to admit that we were the slightest bit ashamed of our racism, I suppose, but his rather forthright confession there, the fact is that Australia was at that time a very racist nation. And I mentioned before that the British Empire, which still had ultimate jurisdiction over the Australian colonies before Federation, of course, it didn't much approve of Australia's racism. Can I tell you this? The British, I mean, the British Empire elite level racists themselves. I mean, if you've gone too far for even them, you've really broken some ground. The reason the British Empire didn't like Australia's immigration controls is that it restricted the movement of people from within the British Empire itself. People from India, South Africa, various Asian colonies, etc. They were all unable to enter Australia, which is nominally and ostensibly a part of the same empire. So these imperial subjects are being discriminated against by other parts of the same empire. But even so, London's resistance to it, the fact that the British Empire was not a fan of these Australian policies, you know, didn't actually lead them to do anything about it. Shortly before Federation, the British colonial secretary, a fellow named Joseph Chamberlain, he commented, we quite sympathise with the determination of these colonies that there should not be an influx of people alien in civilisation, alien in religion, alien in customs, whose influx moreover would seriously interfere with the legitimate rights of the existing labouring population. So I suppose he was speaking from first-hand experience as the colonial secretary, knowing what the influx of people alien in civilisation customs could do to an existing population, because that's exactly what the British Empire had done with its colonies in Australia. But the long and the short of it is this. Australia became a nation in its own right in 1901 And one of the very first things done by this new federal government with Prime Minister Edmund Barton at the helm was to uphold and affirm the racist immigration policies of the colonial government's policies that would go on to be referred to, of course, as the White Australia Policy. And one of the very first acts of the new Australian Parliament was the passing of the Immigration Restriction Act of 1901, which enabled (coughs) certain restrictions on immigration and the removal of prohibited immigrants. There was admittedly a small and largely symbolic concession to the resistance of the British Empire. Rather than, rather than just being a blanket ban on non-white immigration, the act imposed a dictation test on any new immigrants. But here's the thing. The language in which the test was conducted was up to the immigration officer. It did not have to be English. It could be any European language at all. Now, you might be asking, how did this restrict immigration? Surely it would make it easier for immigrants to get in if it could be, you know, if they could use any language. But not quite. Think again. Imagine this, you're Chinese, you're a migrant, you're hoping to move to Australia and start a new life there. You've learned English, so you'll pass this dictation test that's mandated and you'll get into the country, no worries. And so you turn up to the test, they realise that you can speak English quite well. And so the immigration officer then decides, at their discretion, as set out in the act, that the test would not be in English and instead would be in German or Russian or bloody Klingon, mate, who knows? It was just a loophole. On paper, the act looked less racist because the dictation test could be delivered in, you know, a whole different, a whole, a whole bunch of different languages, while in practice, it was a way to ensure that non-whites were kept out. But not, not because of their race. Oh, not because of their race. Not at all. No, no, no. It's because they didn't learn bloody Norwegian or whatever language the official felt like testing that day. There was also another important dimension uh, that this, this act had as well, um, a, 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 little, a little side note here. The test was also used to exclude other people who were deemed undesirable for any number of reasons. And this is illustrated perfectly by the arrival of Egon Kish, right? Now, Kish was Austro-Czechoslovakian, but he was also a communist and a Jew. And he, after having been deemed an un- undesirable person here, he was made to sit this language test, this dictation test, in an effort to keep him out of Australia. But here's the problem. He turned out to be fluent in a lot of different European languages, so many that they ended up testing him in Scottish Gaelic so as to have grounds to prevent him from entering when he was, you know, revealed not to speak Scottish Gaelic. I don't know how many people in Australia do speak Scottish Gaelic, it's certainly not a language that I've ever encountered there, but this just goes to show this story, the story of Egon kish goes to show the lengths that Australia would go to in order to keep its borders closed to the people that they deem to be undesirable. Now, as I said, the British Empire had announced its opposition to race-based immigration testing saying that it would run contrary to the general conceptions of equality, which have ever been the guiding principle of British rule throughout the empire. Now, obviously, that's just a big load of rubbish. We'll put that aside for one moment. Australia's response to the British uh, resistance to it was to make it this technically literacy test, this dictation test, rather than being a race-based one. And the reason for that is probably that Australia still felt that the British empire had some level of sovereignty over this nation, I mean, the Queen's still in the back of our money. Uh, but they didn't really honestly seem to care that much about being all sneaky about this loophole, to be honest. The new Australian government, I mean, Prime Minister Barton leading it, came out and said the doctrine of the equality of man was never intended to apply to the equality of the Englishman and the Chinaman. Edmund Barton, everyone, our nation's first Prime Minister. And it didn't get much better with the bloke who would go on to become the second Prime Minister either, Alfred Deakin. He was the uh, the Attorney-General at the time uh, of the Immigration Restriction Act in 1901, and his reasoning for supporting the bill was just as awful as Barton's. (coughs) It is not the bad qualities, but the good qualities of these alien races that make them so dangerous to us. It is their inexhaustible energy, their power of applying themselves to new tasks, their endurance and low standard of living that make them such competitors. I mean, we've got whole new flavours of racism here, somehow praising and denigrating Asian immigrants at the same time. But the long and the short of it was this. The white Australia policy, this idea that non-white people should not only be banned from entering Australia, but also removed and deported if they already lived there, was well underway from the inception of Australia as a country, and things wouldn't change for a long, long time, given the support that this policy had, at the very highest levels of government, multiple prime ministers coming in and out of office, well and truly backing this approach to immigration. The opening years of the 20th century saw thousands and thousands of non-white people forcibly deported from Australia under the Immigration Restriction Act. Never mind that they have been living there already, they were made to pack their bags and moved away. And of course, new non-white immigrants were barred from entering Australia almost without exception reinforcing the idea that Australia should be exclusively inhabited by white and preferably British people. Between 1901 and 1909, a grand total of 52 non-white people were granted entry into Australia. And after 1909, not a single person who was made to set the dictation test that I mentioned before, not a single person was approved, not a single person passed this test. Further labour laws were put into place to prohibit the use of foreign labour, mandating the employment of white workers only in various sectors. And the most ridiculous thing is this. Australia at the time, it saw itself as a very forward-thinking and modern nation. Australia was wealthy. It was prosperous. The working classes enjoyed high wages and a high standard of living. And just in case you're not convinced that Australia was a massively progressive nation back then, let me tell you this. It was one of the first nations on earth to let women vote. Obviously, only white women because of the whole, you know, endemic racist white Australia policy thing, but it painted itself as this young, free and prosperous nation. However, Australia was still very much and very willingly supporting horrifically racist government policies. As I've mentioned before... This wasn't about to change. As we head into the 1910s and 1920s, after fighting for the British Empire in the First World War and in the lead up to the creation of the League of Nations, Australia argued fiercely against any mandated changes to its immigration policies that membership of the League might entail. Japan in particular was attempting to undo the immigration restrictions that its people faced in Western nations, uh, specifically the United States, Canada, as well as Australia, of course. And Australia dug in its heels. The Prime Minister at the time, Billy Hughes, he threatened to pull Australia out of, out of you know, League of Nation talks if the Japanese proposal to relax immigration restrictions was approved. He, like all his prime ministerial predecessors and you know, more or less every mainstream Australian politician at the time, fully supported a white Australia and boasted of his achievements. In Parliament, Once he, the, once the Japanese proposal was dropped, he came home and he bragged about how he defended the white Australia policy. There are quotes from more or less every single prime minister all the way through to the Second World War and some from afterwards that show support for the white Australia policy. Stanley Bruce, a prime minister Minister in the 1920s, he once said, We intend to keep this country white and not allow its people to be faced with the problems that at present are practically insoluble in many parts of the world. Even John Curtin, widely held as one of the country's greatest Prime Ministers ever due to his leadership during the Second World War, went into the conflict by saying, This country shall remain forever the home of the descendants of those people who came here in peace in order to establish in the South Seas an outpost of the British race. In fact, by the 1940s, 97.3% of Australia's total population had been born either in Australia Or, in the British Isles, 97.3%. The white Australia policy was very effective indeed. Having said that, it is important to note that uh, into the 1930s, in the wake of the Great Depression, immigration levels around the world dropped significantly, and this had a range of other effects, of course, but the enforcement of the white Australia policy became, became a lot less of a political issue, owing simply to the fact that there were fewer immigrants to keep out. But the Second World War, after it arrived, it brought about some pretty significant changes to the way that people thought and felt about immigration in Australia. And in both directions, too. Australia and its proximity to Japan in the Pacific theatre led to to rusted-on supporters of the white Australia policy, worrying even more about non-white immigration, particularly from Asia, fearing that they would be overrun by post-war Asian migrants. However, during the war, talk of abolishing the white Australia policy once and for all, it began to emerge. Australia was a small nation, it was outnumbered by its neighbours, and it needed population growth in order to sustain itself. So in some ways, the Second World War crystallised the issue for many. Some people feared that Japan's aggression during the war would lead to an influx of immigrants, while others feared that the the country would just collapse without an urgent influx of migrants to support Australia's continuing development. In the end, the 1940s and 1950s saw a range of reforms to Australia's immigration policies based on the fact that Australia needed migrants quite quite badly. And as a result, Australia began to encourage immigration from, well, not from other parts of the world, but from other parts of Europe instead. People who had previously been considered undesirable, particularly Greeks, Italians, Yugoslavians, they were now allowed to move to Australia, encouraged to to aid the post-war redevelopment effort and fill the growing labour shortages in the country. But still, there was plenty of resistance even to this slight relaxation of the policy's enforcement. Many Australians uh, they, they still considered the White Australia policy to really refer to people from the British Isles only, and even then, just mainly England. Nonetheless, it marked the beginning of a very slow transition away from the White Australia policy. In 1947, Australia started to approve non-Europeans to settle in Australia for business, And in 1950, the very first Asian international students were approved to study in Australia. And ultimately, the Immigration Restriction Act of 1901, the one with the dictation test, it was repealed and replaced with the Migration Act of 1958. And of course, there was plenty of resistance to it. There was plenty of resistance to this growing trend of allowing more foreign migration to Australia in the wake of the Second World War. Organizations like many trade unions, the Return Services League, and the Absurdly named Australian Natives Association. They all stood in firm support of the White Australia policy, even as it started to come undone. The Australian Natives Association, in particular, ridiculous organisation. In its heyday, it actively sought to disenfranchise actual Australian natives, that is to say, Aboriginals, and was a very powerful political lobbyist group in the period around federation. They they seemed to be completely blind to the irony of their their motto and logos. Australia for the Australians and the like, but they had a lot of support. And over the years, many Australians, they didn't veer away from accusations of racism. In fact, in 1955, check this out, the prime minister at the time, Robert Menzies, after being described as a racist during a radio broadcast, he replied by saying, well, if I were not described as a racist, I'd be the only public man who hasn't been. So you can see that this, this, this racist mentality really was endemic to Australian society. And even though that there was a, a growing movement to, to unpick and dismantle the white Australia policy, it was a very long and very slow process. But thankfully, as we move into the 1960s, the white Australia policy started to be broken apart and done away with, principally thanks to the efforts of Prime Minister Harold Holt. Now, a very quick aside on Harold Holt. I know this has been a very sombre episode, but here's a quick bit of history that's much more in keeping with this dumb podcast. A little bit of a refresher here. You might have heard of Harold Holt. He was the Prime Minister who disappeared off the coast uh, after swimming in rough surf at a beach that he claimed to know like the back of his hand. Uh, he was pulled out while swimming. He was pulled out by a rip. He was never seen again despite a massive search effort. There was no sign of his body and his disappearance spawned all these conspiracy theories about how he'd been you know assassinated on the orders of the CIA or hilariously taken aboard a chinese submarine as he was apparently a lifelong spy for the chinese obviously all that's nonsense but here's something you here's something equally as nonsensical that is actually true and you may this is the thing you may have heard of right after holt's death or presumed death it was decided that a public works project that was underway in his local consti- constituency the area that he represented in parliament right uh, it was decided that this, this project would be named after him. A very nice gesture, you'd think. Very appropriate, you know, the, the Prime Minister losing his life in this way. It's, it's a nice way to memorialise him. And this is why, if you go to the Melbourne suburb of Glen Iris, you will find, and this is not a joke, you will find the Harold Holt Memorial Swimming Centre which still stands today. Our Prime Minister drowns, so what do we do to memorialise him? We name a bloody swimming pool after him. Absolute classic. Anyway, before he disappeared, right, Holt was instrumental in taking apart the white Australia policy altogether. In the In the years leading up to the Holt government, it had been loosened and relaxed, as I say, you know, allowing Southern Europeans a handful of Asian migrants. But in 1966, Holt ripped the guts out of it. He ripped the guts out of the standing policy. Now Australia would welcome migrants... <coughs> On the basis of their suitability as settlers, their ability to integrate readily, and their possession of qualifications positively useful to Australia. Similarly, Australia began to accept refugees fleeing the Vietnam War, Asian migration increased enormously, and ultimately led to a sizable minority population of Chinese, Vietnamese, uh, migrant families, along with Greeks and Italians of yesteryear. But it's not as if Holt enjoyed unanimous support, not at all. During the cultural revolutions of the 60s, he had more support than ever, of course, from the Australian public, as many people sort of woke up to a much more progressive political agenda. But there were plenty of people who stood against him. For example, the opposition leader, a a bloke whose name was Hubert Opperman, who had this to say on the matter. I am proud of my white skin, just as a Chinese is proud of his yellow skin, a Japanese of his brown skin and the Indians of their various hues from black to coffee-coloured. Anybody who is not proud of his race is not a man at all, and any man who tries to stigmatise the Australian community as racist because they want to preserve this country for the white race is doing our nation great harm. I reject in conscience the idea that Australia should or ever can become a multiracial society and survive. And this came from the leader of the opposition, in Parliament during the 60s. Well, I tell you what, Opperman, you absolute turd of a man, you you eared buffoon, you couldn't have been more bloody wrong. But he was one of many people who stood against the attempted reforms of the, of the Holt government, but happily and thankfully, they were largely successful in what they aimed to do, which was open up Australia's borders in a way that had never been seen before. Having said that, despite Holt's reforms, there were still very few legal protections offered to non-white foreign migrants, even after they were let into the country. And so 1966 isn't seen as the end of the White Australia policy, even after this significant piece of immigration reform. It would actually take some very serious civil rights legislation in order to end the era of the White Australia policy. And this took place in 1973, between 1973 and 1975, when the legendary Gough Whitlam explicitly prohibited race from factoring into any aspect of the immigration process. The Whitlam government, they dragged Australia into the modern era, ratifying all existing international treaties on immigration and race and opening up access to citizenship for all migrants, regardless of origin. But before we get too self-congratulatory here and pat ourselves on the back for getting to the point where Australia finally left behind, officially at least, a history of... Systemic and government sponsored racist policy. Let's remember that it was less than 50 years ago that Australia finally abandoned, officially, at least as I say, the White Australia policy and remind ourselves of its legacy even today. Firstly, as I mentioned before, people like Opperman and everyone else who thought that foreign migration would destroy Australia be the end of it. It's demonstrably untrue. Australia has a Huge immigrant population, it's the eighth largest in the world, makes up almost 30% of the total population, and while the majority of the population is still of English, Irish or Scottish extraction, there are sizable minorities from China, Italy, India, Greece, other places around the world. And yet, the sky hasn't fallen. Despite all these racist chicken lickens running around and claiming the sky is falling because of foreign migration, Australia doesn't really seem to have suffered thanks to its multicultural society in the 21st century. But the tainted legacy of the white Australia policy lingers on, and much of Australia's immigration policy today is still racist in its implementation and enforcement, even if it isn't written out as such on paper. Mandatory detention, the incarceration of asylum seekers, offshore processing, the list goes on. The uncomfortable reality is that Australia still has a very bloody long way to go. And there are still those in mainstream politics today who openly or clandestinely would have us return to the White Australia policy. Famously, Pauline Hanson led her racist political party to minor electoral success in the last few years, and most recently, the then-Senator Fraser Anning used his maiden speech in Parliament to explicitly call for the reintroduction of the White Australia policy, calling for, and this is a direct quote from this man, he called for a final solution to the immigration problem. He did get egged, though, when he uh, when he blamed the Christchurch mosque shootings in New Zealand on Muslim immigration in 2019. A-, a kid called William Connolly egged him at a press conference. You can watch it on YouTube. It is brilliant. Anyway, overall, I think Australia enjoys a very positive reputation internationally, and with good reason. We are generally a good bunch of people. We are sensible and caring and egalitarian and very concerned with fairness, But as a nation, we have a very dark history rooted in state-mandated racism, and the spectre of this racist past affects the country in ways that people either do not or will not see. As I've said before, I am proud to be Australian. I am. I love my country, and I believe that Australia's net contribution to human civilisation has been positive. But it is possible to hold these beliefs while recognising both the harm that we as white Australians have done in the past with backwards, regressive, racist immigration policies, as well as the ever-present dangers of modern racism in the 21st century, even in a society as forward-thinking and egalitarian as Australia's. As the philosopher George Santayana once said, and this is the proper quote too, by the way, so you can well actually people when they get it slightly wrong, how's that? He said, Those who cannot remember the past... Are condemned to repeat it. Recognising the mistakes you've made in the past is the best way to improve things in the future. This is true on any level, whether it's personal, social or political. Thankfully, history trends towards progress, and we've come a long way. But by remembering things like the white Australia policy and recognising the harm their legacies do, even today, is a critical part of the mutual improvement of our entire civilization. but well, that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the White Australia Policy. And I know this episode is a little more serious, a little more sombre than what you might be used to from half Assed History. And... I don't make any apologies for it. I think that issues like this do need to be discussed. And certainly this isn't what the podcast is going to be every week from here on out. But I think every now and again, opening your eyes to issues like this is a very good way to remember the importance of history, not just as a way to entertain us and and, and, and enrich our world with stories, but also a way to better the shared experience of humanity by recognising mistakes made in the past. And improving upon them for the future. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back to the normal nonsense next week. <laughs> but uh, if you want to contribute to the show in any way, like uh, like Jerry did this week with a with a fantastic suggestion, please get in touch. net. There's a contact form there that you can use to uh, to send me an email. Um, and of course, you can find all episodes there, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and what have you. And if you want to support the show directly, patreoncom History, A range of different tiers with a range of different benefits that you can enjoy. Uh, half uh, sorry uncut episodes um, early access to them show notes behind the scenes all that sort of stuff if you're interested in that patreon.com slash half asked history anyway that is that as usual closing the show out with a a question well actually not really i was looking for questions i was looking for like funny or interesting questions about australia because we did a lot of talk about australia today Um, i was looking for funny interesting questions questions about my country uh on reddit but they're all just variations of the same thing so i've basically just taken them all put them into one question and so here it is this question asked by most unoriginal Redditors. <clears throat> if Australia is in the future, why doesn't the Coriolis effect stop them from falling into the sun?